Hello and welcome to this episode of the Golden Age of Cricket, a program where we delve way back and explore one of the most fascinating periods in the entire history of cricket. My name is Tom Ford. Our subject today is Wilfred Rhodes, a cricketer who holds many records which, in all likelihood, will never be beaten. His 4,204 first-class wickets seems insurmountable, almost 500 more than his nearest rival, Titch Freeman. In an age of ever-changing formats between red and white ball cricket, his first-class record of 1,110 matches also seems like it'll never be reached. He played his first test in 1899 alongside W.G. Grace and his last in 1930 at a time when Bradman was taking all before him. At 52 years and 165 days, he still holds the record for being the oldest person to play a test match. But his career was much more than just longevity and gigantic numbers. My guest today is Patrick Faraday. Born in London, he lived for many years in West Berlin, but came back to England to work as a racing commentator in the early 1990s. Since 2011, he's written four books and published a number of others via his own publishing group, Von Crum Publishing. He now lives in Brighton, where in 2021, he wrote and published a long-awaited biography on the life and times of Wilfred Rhodes. Patrick, welcome. Thank you, Tom. A pleasure. The title of your biography, Wilfred Rhodes, The Triumphal Arch, seems to me to have wonderful innuendo. On the one hand, it references Wilfred's ever-reliable bowling action, where he could fly at the ball like few others, and one which sent down a record 185,000 first-class deliveries. On the other, it references his extraordinarily long career, spanning from the late Victorian age to the Depression era. Am I correct in this assumption? Absolutely, absolutely. Um, I, it, I would like to say it was, it was my, my subtitle, The Triumphal Arch, but uh, I nicked it from Alan Thompson, A.A. Thompson. Um, and it, it does exactly as you've just said. Um, it references certainly his style of bowling um, in the way that the, the ball arched down from his hand to the batsman's uh, groping bat. Mm. But uh, also, yes, very much. It's the he's the link between the age of Grace and Bradman. Uh, quite simply, um, as you say, his first game was against or was with Grace, and his last game um, was with Bradman. Um, it's it's almost too neat to be true. Eighteen ninety eight to nineteen thirty, um, and also a little bit earlier, you referenced there. Uh, some of some of his um, astonishing records. You said that they might never be broken. I think I'd take issue with that. They they won't ever be broken. Yes. Uh, I don't I don't see anybody taking uh, what was it four thousand two hundred and four wickets or even getting near his forty thousand runs. Don't don't you shouldn't forget he was a half decent batsman, um, and the amount of balls he bowled, the amount of games he played, so on and so forth. Unless cricket uh, as a game takes a turn that it will never take in my opinion um those records are for eternity absolutely and we're going to discuss his uh, statistics in detail later in the podcast but why do you think there's never been a significant 
all-encompassing biography on Wilfred Rhodes until now? A good question. Um, a very good question. Let me see. Um, well, there were two. There were two books published, as you know, um, in the early fifties. Um, Sidney Rogerson wrote a biography of him, and um, same. I think the year before or the year after, Alan Thompson wrote a, a book about um, Wilfred and George Hurst. Maybe, maybe people thought um, Rhodes had been done. Possibly, um, maybe some people might have thought this is this is a bit too big. Um, his career is so enormous, hardly know where to start. Um, perhaps people looked at it and couldn't find enough personal information and thought, well, I'll end up just writing about his statistics and his career, and that's not a book I want to write. Um, I, I, I'm. It's anybody's guess. I don't know how many people have looked at him and, and thought, "Oh, I'd like to write about him," and haven't done it. But mm-hmm. um, so fin- finally, somebody has. And and I must say, the amount of people that wrote to me and said it's about time yes. <laughs> was was very, very, very encouraging. And I am one of them. Absolutely, you've done a splendid job. Um, you touched on it very briefly there, Patrick. What? primary sources were of most value to you while researching his life and career? Well, I suppose those two biographies are, are a, an, an excellent starting point. Obviously, I reference them a lot. Um, but if you're just relying on two other people's biographies, then there's something a bit wrong with your own biography. Um, it's an enormous advantage now to have the internet. Um, you know, all, all his... Uh, all his records, all his achievements, um, all the statistics are just there. You can, you can find anything you want, pretty much. So that's all at your fingertips as well. You don't have to go off to libraries and, and research centres to find those. Um, the same applies to access to um, contemporary newspapers. Um, just join the British Library and, and suddenly you've got, you know, X, X number of uh, newspapers in, in your front room so to speak. Um, also, I suppose I had the advantage over Rod- Rogerson and Thompson, obviously, um, that they wrote 20 years before Wilfred had died. So there's nothing of his later life in their books, for obvious reasons. Um, a, lot of, a lot of bits and pieces about Wilfred have appeared since those two books. So I was able to take advantage of all of those. Um, there's a there's there's a lot he Wilfred appears not surprisingly in a lot of books. <laughs> he had a very long career, so if you, I don't know, for example, I went through my library of books and just went along. Oh, there's a there's a book by Patsy Hendrum. Well, he's sure to mention Wilfred, mm. and he did. There's a book by Frank Woolley. He's sure to mention Wilfred, and he did. And I just went through all the books just to see. The little, sometimes just little bits and pieces, little snippets, sometimes a little bit more. Um, and then I had the wonderful, um, more detailed um, accounts by, particularly the one I like is Jim Kilburn, the Yorkshire historian, whose um, accounts of Wilfred are just marvellous. Uh, I think they, those are really the, the, the very, very best. Neville Cardus also. Um mm-hmm. 
And then on top of that, I was fortunate enough to um, talk at some length to David Frith, who, as we'll um, no doubt get on to, um, met Wilfred and recorded a long interview with him. So I had access to David's memories and also a recording of the interview, um, which didn't, I suppose, bring up anything particularly new in the sense that most of what Wilfred said I already knew, but to hear it in his words, in his voice, is um, really something quite special. And then as far as his personal life was concerned, I had the very, very great pleasure and privilege to talk to Wilfred's granddaughter, Margaret Garten, who is now in her, um, I'm sure she'll listen to this, I'm guessing she's in her early 80s, maybe mid-80s, and she has wonderful memories of him. Um, I think she must have been about 30 when he died, so she knew him very well. Mm. And she was a wonderful source of information about who he was, what it was like to be with him in his last last 20, 25 years of his life. And also she was um, wonderfully... She gave me a lot of confidence in the sense that... Um, She checked over some of the stuff I'd written and was happy with my conclusions and happy with some of the assumptions I'd made. And that made me feel um, very good about what I was doing and and that the idea that I'd actually got him and understood him. And I felt I had, but when Margaret told me, yes, you have, that's when I thought, no, I'm I'm on safe ground now. Mm, That's very sweet. And it's so nice that as we drift further from the golden age, that there are still people alive today who have that connection. I mean, she had a personal connection, but that there are still people who knew these cricketers from the golden age. It's, uh, you know, we're, we're in a few more years and a few more decades, we won't have that connection. It's very sad. So that was, a, I think, a very nice angle in your book. Yeah, I, I, I think I, I was aware of that. I, th- I think I've always been aware of these kind of things. Um, to go slightly off-piste, off um, there was a historian of the First World War, um, and I'm trying to remember her name, MacDonald. Um, she had the idea in the 1970s to talk to lots of veterans of the First World War, mm quite simply because she thought if she didn't talk to them in time, nobody ever would and their stories would be lost. And she's written a whole Hmm. series of First World War books about um, uh, Lynn MacDonald. Um, And a a similar thing would apply, I think, to the writer Stephen Chalk, who um, has written a series of books, or his first two books, were really 90s and 50s and 60s cricketers that he felt their stories hadn't been told and he... Looked, looked for people, interviewed them, talked to them and brought their stories together. Um, yeah, mm. uh, as you say, as we get further away, the the original protagonists die out and then then, then their relatives do. And, and um, so I feel very blessed to have had David and Margaret Garten and also um, George Hurst's granddaughter, um, Lindsay, uh, who was, uh, again, wonderful. She replied to all the emails and she was very excited that I was writing about her grandfather and her grandson, which is, you know, further down the line still, um, was very interested to read about his gra- great, 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 great grandfather. Um, yeah, I do feel that uh, I feel pleased to have 
made some very, very small contribution to continuing the story. Wilfred's longevity and inflated statistics have entered cricket folklore. You must have approached the biography already knowing quite a bit about him, but did anything surprise you in your research? Yeah, well, I can, I can, I can give you, I can give you one, one statistic which not only surprised me, but I think surprised a lot of other people. Mm-hmm. Um, Wilfred played more first-class innings than any any other player ever to play the game. Um, not only does he hold the record, obviously, as most people know for the most first-class wickets, but he batted more more times than anybody else. Um, I thought that was mm. that was rather a remarkable thing. Um, I can add a few others to the the oldest ever um, man to play Test cricket. Mm-hmm. Um, the amount of county championships he won, and I'm, I'm <laughs> I think I might. Um, I might uh, stall at how many it was. It, it was a lot of county championships anyway. Um, most uh, thousand wicket, thousand run, hundred wicket doubles. Mm-hmm. I think it was 16 in his yeah. career. Um, it, I think the more I went on, the more I realised what it took to take 4,200 wickets. Mm. Season after season after season, you look at his records, and there's seven wickets here, five wickets there, 11 wickets in the match there, and relentlessly on and on and on. And for people who are a bit bowled over by the amount of the wickets, um, it's worth bearing in mind that the First World War came in the middle of, not Mm. quite in the middle of his career, but uh, that would have been... I think you can safely say another six or seven hundred wickets, probably, if the First World War hadn't intervened. Um, plus, he almost gave up bowling for a couple of years just before the First War when he decided he'd be a batsman instead. Mm-hmm. Um, so, goodness knows. I mean, he could have taken 5,000, but I think 4,204 is plenty. Yes. And having heard the interview with David Frith from the 1970s, what's remarkable is... Wilfred's memory and his recall, I mean, for someone who achieved so much statistically, he seems to be able to even, I think he's in his 90s when he recorded that interview, is he still recalls such vivid detail from 70 years ago. It's quite remarkable. Astonishing. Mm. Absolutely astonishing. Um, Luckily, he didn't have to correct David because David knew all those figures Uh, as well. Yes. Um, but yes, he, he, uh, a, a, a remarkable recall. Um, I think he was he was the kind of player who probably um, would remember things because he thought so much about what he was doing. I think that we'll probably get onto this later. But thought was intrinsic to the way he played the game. Um, there's one quote I came across which almost seemed to um, encapsulate his approach to, not just to cricket, actually, to, to life. He always figured, and he was confident, that he could puzzle it out. Um, if he put his mind to it, and there was a problem facing him, he could puzzle it out. And puzzle it out, he did. Um, in all walks of life, he, he puzzled out how to live comfortably, even in his later years when he was totally blind. Um, he puzzled out how to get out the best batsman. He puzzled out how to change his approach to bowling when the wickets weren't what he wanted. He puzzled out 
I would say in some ways he puzzled out how to how to bat. Um, he wasn't a natural batsman. He was a natural bowler, but he wasn't a natural batsman. But he puzzled that out. Um, he was he was just a great thinker and a great believer in his own uh, mental ability to solve problems. Um, and I think he saw cricket um, as an exercise in some ways in problem solving, um, not just his own game, for other people as well. Hence, he was a very, very good advisor and coach to people who wanted to listen to him. Mm. Um, and I've rambled on now and I've forgotten what the actual initial <laughs> question well, was. Talking about his, uh, his memory, but his... I think the quote. Yeah. I think the quote you may have been referencing, and now my memory is doing me a disservice. So I'll paraphrase, and I'm not sure who said it, but essentially, it was along the lines of when George Hurst got you out in the first innings, he got your wicket, but when Rhodes yeah. got you out in the first innings, he actually got you out twice because he knew exactly what to do in the second innings. Exactly. Good quote. Like that. It was Roy Kilner who said that. Um, so, so my memory's all right. <laughs> um, yes. Um, and I, I, I think that's that's good old Roy Kilner. Yeah. That's a it's it's a great quote, and um, it's not apocryphal, and also it has more than a ring of truth about it. Um, he did. He did have an astonishing memory for weaknesses and strengths of opposing cricketers and players on his own side. Um, he just stored this stuff away. Um, one of his teammates, uh, Emmett Robinson, did actually have a little book where he would make notes, but Wilfred didn't. He, he just stored it in his head. And I think probably you'd be safe to say that they, they couldn't be a, a cricketer who had a more profound understanding of the game he played. Um, yeah, he, he, he got to build that understanding over 32 years, but there was something very scientific um, in his nature. He was a great admirer of uh, scientists and inventors um, because they puzzled stuff out. And that's that was... That was his his way of, 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 of approaching life. Let's return right to the beginning. Wilfred Rhodes was born on the 29th of October, 1877, just three days before Victor Trumper, as it turned out, in Kirkheaton, Yorkshire. What can you tell us about Kirkheaton at that time and the cricket environment in which Wilfred was raised? Um, well, Kirkheaton's uh, not a village. It's a, a large village, small town just outside Huddersfield um, in South, South Yorkshire. Uh, a bit more, not quite South Yorkshire, but to the south of the middle of Yorkshire. Um, he was one of two children, uh, the oldest of two. Um, his father was a very keen uh, amateur cricketer. Um, Kirk Eaton, like all towns and villages of that size at that time, had a had its own cricket, cricket club. Um, he grew up playing sports, very keen on sports. I'm sure his father was a, a great encourager, um, football and cricket, but particularly cricket. 
Um, and he graduated into the Kirk Eaton second 11 when he was about 13, 14, something like that. Kirk Eaton was a... Uh, was not not a not a salubrious place at the time. Um, his father was a miner, um, and well, like 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 most people in in the village, um, they worked with their hands, and and life was pretty tough. Um, Wilfred did a lot of walking to cricket matches, and um, you know, he went to see when he was young. He went to see W. G. Grace play in uh, Bradford. Um, it was just a twelve mile walk. <laughs> but he saw WG play, and I think that I seem to remember WG got a duck, which which rather annoyed him. Um, uh, but yeah, a, a pretty uh, would I call it a tough upbringing? No, he had loving loving parents, um, but no 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 luxuries. Um, I do think that. His upbringing certainly affected the rest of his life in the sense that there was no there was there was no safety net really. Um, this was the day before in the days before um, governments coming to your aid if you if you fell on hard times. Um, you would rely on families more than any any kind of state support, and I think throughout his life he always worried to a degree about money. Um, and that would be a hangover from from his from his childhood, I think. Um, as far as the cricket was concerned, yeah, he got into the second team when he was thirteen, fourteen, and there was a chap playing for the first team called George Hurst, who was, I think, George was five years older than him, maybe round about that, and was already playing for Yorkshire and was the clearly the hero of the village and um and he batted left uh, batted right-handed and bowled left arm as did uh, Wilfred which must have been nice for Wilfred and he had he had a man to look up to and something to aspire to and what's extraordinary about the era and the area in which Wilfred emerged is that two other cricketers would also come through the ranks and play for England George Hurst as you just mentioned and Schofield Hague. Collectively, they were known as the Huddersfield Triumvirate. What can you tell us mm-hmm. about these two other cricketers and their relationship with Wilfred Rhodes? Well, that's a, yes, the Triumvirate is a, is a very um, commonly used, well, I say commonly used, it is to me, because having, having spent years and years researching, um, I could point, I think, Probably it's fair to point you to a book by Harry Pearson, um, which was published just after mine, which is about the three of them. And that goes into, I mean, I'd recommend it to anybody who who enjoyed reading about Wilfred in my book, um, read the Harry Pearson one as well. It's a, it's a different kind of approach. Harry Pearson's a different writer to me and, and wasn't trying to ape what I was doing by any means. Um, George, as, a, as I alluded to, yeah, was five years older. He was already in the Yorkshire team when Wilfred was making his way um, in the in the Kirkheaton seconds, then the Kirkheaton firsts. Um, uh, Hurst's early career was a little bit slower to get started. I mean, he, he got into the Yorkshire team, but it took him took him a while to be really successful and to be considered for England selection. Um, Schofield Hay now um, he's 
um, guessing at this. I think he's he's he was a bit younger than George and a bit older than Wilfred, a couple of years older than Wilfred, I think. I should look in my own book to <laughs> to um, check that. He came, he came from a village about 10 miles away from Kirk Eaton. Um, and he was uh, a right-arm off-break bowler. Um, he's actually a decent batsman as well. Um, the three of them together are, are, are fascinating in the sense that they are three very different characters. Um, now, you'll know that there is. I have written a, a chapter in the book about the three of them together. Mm-hmm. Um, not so much just about what they achieved, although they did achieve a lot. Having those three in a team at the same time was you you had a fair old chance of winning the county championship especially as you had stanley jackson as well in the same team you know you you're gonna you were gonna bowl bowl out most other teams pretty easily Mm. um but they were very very different characters um i certainly think of the three of them um hay and hurst were much more the uh, were the obvious soulmates um very jolly um, Schofield Hay was um, life and soul of the party in the same way that George Hurst was. He was a great practical joker. Um, they they enjoyed themselves enormously. Um, George Hurst was a was a great singer. He he'd been bought. George had been brought up in a in a pub, um, and liked nothing more than the kind of barroom atmosphere of singing and jollity and. Playing the game for fun, uh, George would just throw himself at everything um, like a little rubber ball. Um, he didn't. I, 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 well, I suspect. No, I think I know. He didn't think overly about it. He just relied on his own intuitive skill and brute strength and fortitude um, to knock people over, and it worked. Hmm. Um, Wilfred kind of scowled a bit about the approach of those two that there's a quote i use where wilfred just said well george was the the greatest cricketer i ever saw but he wouldn't have taken nearly as many wickets if i hadn't set the fields for him (laughs) because george didn't care where the fielders stood he just figured he could knock everybody over on his own Hmm. and wilfred had to kind of rein him in sometimes and say look you need a fielder there you need a fielder there that'll that'll help um and george yeah whatever (laughs) <laughs> it um it it seems like a very accurate uh summation that you gave us i mean this is a what i'm about to say is a very artificial way of analyzing someone but looking at the photographs from the era george hurst uh he often seems to have a smirk on his face he looks you know he's holding a pipe and he looks like he's having fun whereas wilfred always had a much more of a steely determination upon his face that's my uh sort of uh, look at it anyway i think i think you looks abs- absolutely right um i think i've only got in the whole book uh, maybe a couple of pictures where wilfred is actually smiling mm. or laughing even uh, there's a great one with him and lord hawk um where he's really smiling but yes um i think i think your assumption is absolutely right um to put it in a, a sentence or two, George played it for fun and, and Wilfred played it for business. Hmm. Um, I, you'd be hard-pressed to say one was better than the other. I, I, I think that as a natural player, George Hurst was, was certainly Rhodes' superior in, in probably in most ways. Um, 
But having said that, probably if George hadn't played for fun, he wouldn't have been nearly as good. He had to follow his his instincts and had to play the way he knew. Um, and that probably counted against him being a record breaker in the same way that Wilfred was. Mm. Um, also, simple things like George was not a great... Um, he couldn't conserve his energy. He would just throw himself at stuff. Um, so when things went right, he was capable of scoring 2,000 runs and taking 200 wickets in one season. Um, Wilfred probably wouldn't have done that because he'd have thought about next season or the tour in the following winter and and just held a little bit back, maybe. Um, that could be why he was... Um, why he became a spin bowler in the first place. It could also be why he decided um, in about 1905, 1906, that he wanted to concentrate more on his batting than his bowling because he could see more longevity in that. Um, he was... I, I, I've come back to it, and I'll probably come back to it again. He was very much a professional cricketer, and I don't mean in the sense that he was just paid to play as opposed to an amateur, um, in the sense that... He wanted his career to go on for a long time and he wanted it to ensure that he and his family were going to be financially secure for all their lives. Mm. Um, I, I think there was a deep-seated, and this is something I talked to Margaret, his daughter, his granddaughter about, I think there was a deep-seated fear in him of what could go wrong and and that's why i started the book as you might remember with a scene in a graveyard where mm. um the burial of a yorkshire cricketer for whom it had all gone wrong mm. um and i think i th I, uh, I didn't i didn't write that chapter for effect i i do think that 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 funeral in i, I can't remember was it 1898 1899 um the funeral of Billy Billy Bates. Um, I think that did that did affect him, and did worry him, and did make him realise. I think I wrote what what lay below if things went wrong. And Wilfred thought, how can I how can I best um, um, array the chances against things going wrong? What's what's the best way for me to pursue my career other than being a very good cricketer? How can I organise it best? Um, and he did a pretty good job of it. And and not to mention the outbreak of the First World War, of course, which must have, amongst a whole raft of emotions, must have really cast doubt in his mind as to whether his career could go on, not knowing when the war was going to end, of course. Do you think that possibly drove him post-war to keep playing because he had to make up for any lost cricket i think well i think that would be that would be um one consideration um i think there were a number of number of considerations um he was he was fit um and he was perfectly capable of playing after the first war um for example i mean you could draw a parallel with colin blythe who hmm as you know, didn't survive the First World War. But Colin Blythe said at the pretty much at the outbreak of the First World War, that's it for me. I, I won't play first-class cricket again. Mm. 
he he thought he was coming to the end of his career anyway. Right. Um, and Colin Blythe would have been about the same age as Wilfred, maybe a tad younger. Um, but he felt that his career was finished anyway, or was on its in its decline. Um, I don't think Wilfred thought that in 1913 or 1914 at all. But when he came back, or when, sorry, when the first war finished and they came back in 1919 of course there were huge gaps in all the county ranks not not so much casualties although of course there were some um some very famous ones percy jeeves for example being being one um and colin blythe um but players hadn't played first class cricket so um so there was a great weakness in a lot of counties and wilfred rejoined the Yorkshire team and found out he was still the best spin bowler in the country. And his batting, I mean, initially he was, he was the opening batsman for Yorkshire when, when they restarted uh, after the first war, as he had been just before the first war. Um, but Yorkshire's batting was okay then and the bowling wasn't so okay. So basically they said, look, Wilfred, we need your bowling more than your batting. Um, and then Herbert Sutcliffe came along, <laughs> which rather um, Im- imperiled his position as an opening bat. Um, mm. And he was very happy to drop down the order. You know, he had um, Herbert Sutcliffe and Percy Holmes as two opening batsmen. And Wilfred went back to number six, number seven in the order and became their uh, premier bowler again. And as you'll know, he topped the averages, I think, four years in a row, 21 to 25, something like that. Mm. Um Economical action, um, natural fitness, um, and uh, brilliant skill, and the ability to puzzle it out. Returning to the early days, Wilfred's arrival on the first-class cricket scene back in 1898 coincided with a very successful period for Yorkshire cricket as they won the county championship six times in the first 11 seasons of his career. Was he an immediate success as a cricketer? And if so, how much did he contribute to Yorkshire's triumphs around the turn of the century? Well, was he an immediate success? Yes. <laughs> an unequivocal yes, yes, and yes. <laughs> um, he um, he only really kept... I mean, it's. Uh, I have to go into it, the fascinating story, how he got into the team. Um, Yorkshire had a very, very good left-arm bowler, Bobby Peel, but Bobby Peel got sacked from the Yorkshire team in 1897. There were various indiscretions with drink, mm. and uh, Bobby Peel was chucked out. Yorkshire needed another left-arm bowler. They trialled two of them, um, Wilfred and Albert Cordingly, and they decided before the 1898 season, they, they their first four or five games were in the south of England, so the, their squad took off, um, and they took Cordingly and Rhodes. Um, they didn't know before the first game, which was against the MCC at Lords, whether Rhodes or Cordingly would play. Lord Hawke apparently favoured Cordingly, 
Um, but he said to Stanley Jackson, can you have a net with both of these bowlers and then tell, tell me who you think should play? Jackson went out, did a net with both of them, came back and said, you want this guy, Rhodes. He's, he's the better. So Wolfred played in the first game against the MCC at Lords. He'd never been to London before, and there he was at Lords. And wouldn't you know it, he was bowling to WG Grace. Mm. <laughs> so de- decent start, decent start to your career. Um, he did pretty well. Um, he got, f- I think, five or six wickets in the first game. Um, nothing, nothing remarkable, but. He'd been bowling to Billy Murdoch, WG Grace, mm. um, and various other luminaries. Um, so they kept him in the team for the second game, which was the first champ- their first championship game of the season. They went down to Somerset, and uh, it was a wet wicket, and w- Wilfred got 14 wickets. And um, Mr. Cordingly packed his bags and was never seen by Yorkshire cricket again. Um, and that was that. Um, Rhodes went on to take... I think it was 170, 180 wickets in that season. Wow. He was the he was the very, very rare um, recipient of one of the five cricketers of the year in his first season. I have I have tried to find out how many other people have managed that. There's really not very many. Um, I've only found two or three, and even they didn't have full season. Herbert Sutcliffe was. But that was partly because it was 1919 after the first war, and um, uh, Wilfred was—he was second in the averages, but I think he got more wickets than anyone else, and that was in his first season. Um, so, in answer to your initial question, yes, he was an enormous success in his in his first season, and an absolutely astounding, overwhelming success for somebody who'd only ever played club cricket before and was a self-taught spin bowler. Now, Patrick, one figure looms large over Yorkshire cricket during this period, and you mentioned him in your previous answer, and that is Lord Hawke, who captained the county for a staggering 28 years. His influence was so great that he had the power to prevent Wilfred from touring Australia in 1901-02. What sort of relationship did Wilfred have with Lord Hawke? Yeah, that's a very interesting one. Um Well, firstly, I think when I was dealing with this, I was kind of thinking, what relationship do I have with Lord Hawke? And and do I try and avoid imprinting my own views of Lord Hawke onto Wilfred? Um, You know, there's a danger in doing that. I mean, I I think Lord Hawke was, he did some remarkable things. I mean, he cleared cleared out the team of um, a team of basically a lot of people doing a lot of drinking um underachieving um he yeah he transformed he transformed the team um he did a lot of good things about winter payments but boy did he tell everybody how great he was <laughs> if you have the misfortune to read um lord hall's book um it, it's it oh god it, it's almost unreadable except as a sort of comedy of self-aggrandizement um I think I, I have a natural antipathy towards amateurs against professionals in that time. Um, that's my sort of political standpoint, maybe. Um, so I tried not to bring all that in, and I probably failed. But um, I think in answer to your question, um, I think Wilfred had a lot of respect for him, a lot of respect for what he'd done for Yorkshire cricket. Um 
he was a Lord Hawk was actually wasn't wasn't a bad player. Um, he was a damn sight better than the captains that followed him as, as a player mm. and as a captain. Actually, he wasn't a bad captain. Um, I think Wilfred had certainly when he was younger, um, it it kind of dissipated as he became older. A natural respect for authority, and Lord Hawk really was authority. Mm. Um, but there are little bits and pieces that fall into place. There was one sort of unguarded quote that I came across um, where they were talking about financial arrangements for widows after a player died. And uh, this this affected Schofield Hayes' widow after he died that Yorkshire wouldn't give him or wouldn't give her his um, benefit money. Mm. I think they lent him, they lent her some of Hay's benefit money so she could buy a house, but they charged it charged interest on it. Mm. Um, and Wilfred just said, well, I expect that was one of Lord Hawke's daft ideas. Right. Um, I think that that gives you an idea that um, there was a certain amount of um, disgruntlement in there. But he was a professional cricketer and he knew not to muddy the waters. He knew not to cross Lord Hawke because he'd watch Bobby Peel get kicked out. I mean, admittedly, Bobby Peel was a big drinker and a bit of a troublemaker in many senses. Uh, Wilfred was never that. Um, but Wilfred wasn't going to take any risks. And I think he knew to he knew when to keep his mouth shut, let's say. Mm. Um, and... But having said that, I do think overall he had a lot of respect for Hawk and the way Hawk ran the team and the way um, the team performed under Hawk. They were hugely successful and, and Wilfred didn't mind being on a winning team. I think one of my favourite moments in your entire book comes at the end of your chapter talking about Wilfred's relationship with Lord Hawke. And it's quite comical, and uh, I might miss some of the details. You can correct me, but you're talking about the moment, I think it's about 1926, when Lord Hawke is presenting Wilfred with a portrait of himself, of Wilfred. And Hawke, at the unveiling, at the presentation, calls this the high point of Rhodes' career, and you simply say it definitely wasn't. And and that's the end of the chapter, and it just sort of sums up the dichotomy i suppose of their uh, place in cricket as well yeah i think so i mean as i said um lord hawk lord hawk had a pretty high opinion of himself mm. and um i mean as did as did quite quite a, quite a few of the um the go- the golden age cricketers i mean the you know that 19 you you we started on this talking about the 190102 tour where um Lord Hawke wouldn't let um, Wilfred or George Hurst go on the tour. Mm. He basically said, no, they're, you know, they're Yorkshire players and they're not going. And both of them acquiesced, but they didn't really have much choice. Um, that was a lot to do with the fact that Archie McLaren was leading the tour and Lord Hawke and Archie McLaren did not like each other. And Lord Hawke wasn't going to make anything easy for Archie McLaren. Um <sighs> Dear me. I mean, you know, there are so many handbags they were throwing at each other. They, they really did need to sometimes you just feel get a grip. But they were obsessed with themselves. Um, McLaren, every bit as much as Lord Hawke, worrying about his legacy and how he would be seen 
um, to future generations. Um, you do sometimes just shake your head and think, oh, my giddy aunt, this is really a bit too much. Um, having said that, what they did for cricket in their own ways um, was quite remarkable and cricket wouldn't have been the same without these people. Um, but uh, yes, I don't, I don't think the presentation of that portrait was uh, a great high point of, of Wilfred's career. I think it was something that um, it was a commissioned portrait and, and a lot of work went into it. Um, and it's, I can't remember, I think it hangs at Lord's now. Um, I think Wilfred would have just shaken his head and sort of, he wouldn't have even muttered under his breath. He wouldn't have needed to. Um, and he'd have, he'd have gone through what he needed to go through and, and yeah, and then he'd have collected his paycheck. Well, let's talk about Wilfred's bowling action because it was through his bowling, of course, that he immediately found success. You go into great detail in your book about uh, the mechanics of his action. Can you describe it for our listeners, please? This is a this is a great one, really, because there's so little um, footage that you have to kind of put together various people's accounts of it. Um, and I'm not I'm not a bowler myself, so I have to kind of try and learn what other people say about it. Um, yeah, he was a slow left arm bowler. Um, came off a pretty short run, three or four pace run. He almost exclusively bowled round the wicket. I think I found one reference to him bowling over the wicket, mm. <laughs> but the rest of the time it was all round the wicket. Um, and very, very, very easy easy action as you'd expect as any any good left arm spinner should have um the easiest action i suppose someone like bish and Beatty, well yeah think think bish and Beatty, except um it wasn't bish and Beatty, but that kind of ease of ease of delivery um i think the most important thing obviously is what happens when the ball comes out of the hand uh he had i mean wilfred did have remarkable control as you would imagine over what he was doing he uh, firstly he knew what he wanted to do i think in in the sense of i'm going to say it again puzzling things out he knew where he wanted the ball to go um probably he knew when he bowled the first ball where he wanted the fourth ball of the over to go mm. and where he wanted the other three to go to prepare for the fourth um and he had enough control and accuracy to actually do that now i think we could all think of plenty of other spinners who um have that kind of ability that um, that you're not trying to take a wicket with every ball. You're trying to build up to the the one that is going to take the wicket. Um, so, I I think through all the studying and all the reading about him, I think for Wilfred, I would say spin wasn't the great weapon in the sense that he knew there wouldn't always be spin there. I, he wasn't a massive spinner of the ball. He could certainly could spin it a lot, but he wasn't a he wasn't a huge spinner of the ball. Um, he was very accurate, but I think with uh, and of course changes of pace, changes of flight, mm. of course they're in there. But length was um, I think for him absolutely crucial, and length combined with flight, so that you're kidding people on length. Um, people think you're bowling to a certain length and you're not um 
So if I give you a wonderful example, which which came from Wilfred's mouth, um, he talked about bowling to certain batsmen, um, particularly ones who were perhaps not test class. Maybe he wouldn't have done this to Victor Trumper. So a, a batsman comes in um, who's perhaps a little bit in awe of Wilfred. Mm-hmm. Um, and Wilfred bowls him um, basically a half volley just outside the off stump. And the batsman thinks, oh, well, that's not that bad. Um, but because it's Wilfred, doesn't think, oh, I'll just drive that through the covers for four. Is just happy to have not got out first ball. And then they've got a few seconds to think about it and think, actually, I should have driven that through the covers for the first first ball. I could have hit Wilfred for four first ball. And then Wilfred sends down the next ball and it looks exactly the same as the one before. And the batsman, who's had a little bit of time to think about this, thinks, oh, this time I will knock it through the covers for four. But that ball that looks exactly the same isn't exactly the same. It's just about two inches shorter. It's coming with the same trajectory, same flight, but it's two inches shorter, which means when the ball hits the ground, it's got time to spin. The batsman goes for the uh, cover drive and bingo. There's Mm. first slip, second slip, taking the catch. That, that's that's a little bit of Wilfred Kidology. And he said, I wouldn't use this on Walter Hammond or Victor Trumper because they would hit the first ball through the covers yeah. before. Um, but he was very, very um, prepared to get knocked around if he thought that would get him a wicket against um, a batsman that he needed to buy the wicket. Um, but I do think length is a absolutely crucial um he thought that any no spin bowler should ever be um cut or pulled right because you can't you can't cut you can't cut a ball that's pitched up uh, a, mm. a cut a, a square cut is off a short pitch ball and no spin bowler should ever pitch the ball short um maybe over pitch every now and then um the 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 mechanics of cricket are such that if the ball is pitched short you've got time to see what it does off the pitch. Hmm. If it's over-pitched, you don't. And, of course, it's been, if it's on a good length, you've got even less um, even less um, options. Early on in his career, it seems that opposition and critics acknowledged his brilliance on a sticky wicket, but suggested he wouldn't be as damaging on harder, that is, Australian wickets. Is this how it played out? Well, you know the answer to that. No. <laughs> um, yeah, after his after his first season, when he'd been so successful and been one of the five cricketers of the year, um, various people came came in and said, "Ah, yeah, well, it was a wet summer and it's all very well and so on. Let's see how he gets on in a dry summer." And the summer of eighteen ninety nine was dry. Um, he took fifty more wickets at a slightly lower average than he had in the wet summer. Um, so that that put them to bed. Um, he showed that he could get wickets on um, on flat surfaces, um, and of course they were uncovered pitches, so there were still stickies around. Um, that was a uh, certainly when he went to Australia, if, uh, as you know, or as we alluded to, uh, he didn't go in nineteen oh one oh two because Lord Hawke wouldn't wouldn't let him. Um, Colin Blythe did go, and and Colin Blythe was a left arm spinner um he had trouble turning the ball in australia i think he did he did okay but um 
it, it wasn't a, a greatly happy time for him. Um, Rhodes finally was selected for the 0304 tour. Um, and there were various people said, well, uh, well, one of whom was uh, Ranjit Sinji, who said, mm-hmm. well, he won't get a wicket out there. Um, and I think, so I, you would probably know better than me, I think there were one or two Australians who were very dubious about that all they knew was he was a left-arm spinner who seemed very proli- particularly prolific on wet, wet, wet wickets. And let's see how he does on a billiard table against Victor Trumper. Um, and he might find that life is very, very difficult, very, very different and difficult. Um, different air as well, not just just not just the flatness of the wickets, um, all, all number of things. And I would be quite certain that Wilfred was very, very well aware of the dangers of what might happen um, and that he might or probably would need to modify his approach to bowling. I think actually Victor Trumper was one who suggested after the 1902 Australian tour of England, which mm. when Trumper stamped his authority as the superstar batsman, yeah, uh, and it was a very wet season, that he suggested, yes, Wilfred's a lovely bowler, but he's not going to have any uh, success uh, on the harder Australian pitches. And uh, yeah. Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah. Yeah, I knew you'd know. <laughs> <laughs> um, of course, Wilfred was a professional cricketer as opposed to an amateur. For our listeners who might not be across the dynamic between professional amateur cricket at the turn of the century, could you please explain it and what being a professional cricketer actually meant for Wilfred? Um, I can explain it a bit, but before I do, um, if anybody... Um, is interested in this subject, then read Rick Sisson's book, mm. um, which, uh, and I can't remember the title, is it called The Players? It is. It is, yeah. I mean, it's one of one of the great cricket books. It's a, it's a mar, I, I, I've read it three or four times. I've researched it. I've used it. it it's, it's a wonderful book. Um, yeah. Um, I'll, I'll put it into a few sentences. It's professionals play for money. Amateurs uh, played for fun. Um, amateurs were theoretically were wealthy people who didn't need um, paying to play cricket Um, professionals did Um, it's not quite that simple because WG Grace for example wasn't a wealthy man and he got paid more than any any professional um, ever did Hmm. Um, he was what was called a shamater Um, he collected um, he wasn't paid but he had uh, very um, lucra- lucrative um, expenses, let's say. Yes. Um, for example, on the tour of Australia, his expenses were double um, the pay of any professional. Um, yeah, and the professionals didn't earn a lot. Um, Lord Hawk was was pretty good with his his Yorkshire lot. Um, he and um, well, he always claimed he was the first to offer winter pay to the professionals. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, he wasn't. Sorry, sorry, I'd already done that. Um, yeah, the professionals stuck together. The amateurs used different dressing rooms to the professionals. Mm-hmm. Um, and it would always the captain of the team would always be an amateur, um, which um, there's, that comes into Wilfred's story in the 20s. Um, 
and the amateurs were referred to as Mr. and would happily refer to his players by their surnames. Um, I think there were certainly more enlightened amateurs. Um, some of the old school certainly would record, would use set surnames. And um, yeah, there was a, there was a, a lot of um, bad feeling, I think, amongst professionals at, at certain times. But there was also the feeling, I think, amongst most professionals that the captain should be an amateur, that he is... There's a natural distance between him and the rest of the team, which is probably good for the team. And of course, this caused this caused um, um, raised eyebrows, I think, amongst the Australians of, of the, the Australian players of the time, who were much more egalitarian um, and were astonished by this um, what they perceived as a ludicrous divide in English cricket between the. The amateurs and, of course, amateur captains of the England team um, mentioned McLaren, um, Pelham Warner, Foster, CB Fry, all all the um, pre 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 First World War captains, and going, of course, right up to the early fifties when Len Hutton became the first professional captain of an Eng- of an England team. It was just the way things were. Mm. Um, that was perceived to be the way cricket was. Um, and that was the way it was organized. Um, I think I, I, um, I get fairly crotchety sometimes in the book. Um, probably, um, there's a point where people reading it might be saying, oh God, he's going to go on about this again. (laughs) Um, the, the, the great magazine of the, or the, the, the magazine of the period was called Cricket, a weekly record of the game, which was, um, um, edited later by Pelham Warner, became the cricketer. Mm. Um, reading the reports in there, um, you quite often you wouldn't know that, well, obviously I was concentrating on Yorkshire and England because of Wilfred, you wouldn't even know that Wilfred had been playing. And then you'd look, actually look down at the scorecard and think, oh, he's taken 11 wickets and got two half centuries. I didn't realise he was playing. <laughs> um and and then they because they're banging on about Lord Hawke getting a quick forty at the end of the innings when it didn't matter. Hmm. Uh, uh, it it drew, though that kind of stuff drove me mad. Right, the unfairness of it. But you know, I I need to put a lid on it and and think. Well, that's what was going on at the time. And um, yeah, most people just got on with it. Um, I'm sure in professional dressing rooms up and down the country, there was a lot of muttering and, and a, a lot of bad feeling. But, you know, you, you, if you weren't going to accept it, you weren't going to play first-class cricket. Simple as that. That concludes part one of today's podcast on Wilfred Rhodes, featuring his biographer, Patrick Faraday. Keep an eye out for part two on the Golden Age of Cricket podcast. I'm Tom Ford. Bye for now.